Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and we're doing it by going through Exodus. And we've got all the way through Exodus 24. We did 24 last week in the afternoon show, and uh, there are a few things that I've added to it. I, again, I'm going through the Exodus uh, videos that uh, Jordan Peterson was putting up and creating. And uh, I'm seeing what is really helping me see what other people do not see. They see a lot of things. They say a lot of things that I think are very accurate about Exodus, uh, about the text, because that's what they're dealing with is the Torah text of Exodus, the explanation that is in there in the original Hebrew. They look at the Hebrews sometimes. And they've been going through and reading the text. Uh, they started doing something in uh, 20 and 21 where they were not reading every single verse. They were skipping whole verses, supposedly to kind of move it along. I think they were intending to have like one-hour episodes, and they're running into two-hour episodes. And uh, there's a lot of rabbit trailing, which is... Good, but it makes it difficult to follow exactly where they're going when I'm putting together uh, what I hope to be even more shows on Exodus to get us into it deeper. But uh, I am looking at some of the things that they do say that I didn't bring up in the show that we covered 24. 24 is really this, the covenant confirmed. Early on, Moses asks all the people, do you agree to do what God is going to tell you to do. And they all say, yeah, they will. And they're asked several times if they consent. And they all say that they will. At least that's what you're hearing. I'm sure that there had to be somebody who didn't consent and decided at their first opportunity to go off on their own way. And uh, I have no reason to know that they recorded that except for the looking at the numbers as they traveled, that the numbers seem to have decreased from what they claimed in some texts to start out with. And so where are all these other people going? And how are they finding other places to be? And are they going in groups? Or are they, for some reason or other, they're just finding their own way to go another way? And this is, because I can't imagine that you had a million people and they were all consenting. Uh, they're not really taking everything into consideration. And that's what kind of comes up in Exodus 24 and in subsequent uh, chapters that we'll see that uh, they all say they're going to do this, but then they're not doing it pretty quick on. But anyway, so the covenant is reconfirmed in verse 4. Moses builds an altar. They don't explain exactly what the altar is, but Moses will explain more and more about these altars, and we've already seen some of that, that they're unhewn stones. 
So if the stones of the altar are actually living stones and the physical stones are just representing those living stones, which is what I contend is actually taking place, when he says he builded an altar under the hill and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel, is that somehow symbolic of the fact that he's going to have uh, the elders and the seventy and uh, other people that are lining up in order to do certain tasks. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying is that those stones are representing people and the people are represented by stones. This is this is why we see people making gods of silver and gods of gold. Those Images of silver and gold are representing, have always represented actual real people that carried out real functions in the societies in which they erected or established these symbols of silver and gold. They were actually explaining a hierarchy of authority within these city-states. And if you realize when we cover Golden Calf again, the Golden Calf was going back to the centralization of wealth. You centralize wealth, you centralize the power over it, you centralize authority, and of course eventually Israel will do that. With Saul, they'll give him some power, even though in Deuteronomy 17.16 it tells us what to write in a constitution to limit his power we don't see any evidence that that power was limited for Saul, except for a few statements by Samuel who says that he did something foolish when he forced the offering of the people. We saw where God is clearly, and we will see this again, clearly wanting free will offerings. And uh, I added to our page on sacrifice and offerings because of the fact that there are so many different words that are translated into offer or offering or burnt offering or peace offering. And all of these words are different words and they have slightly different meanings. We also know that uh, Moses uh, calls for a sacrifice and uh, that a burnt offering. Again, we have articles on burnt offering. A burnt offering is an offering totally given up. It is as if it is burnt up to you. You've turned it over to somebody else to do something else with. You put it on this altar. And now the authority of that altar, if the altar, when we're talking about the altar in the sense of the living stones, the people are actually represented by the unhewn stones. So these are unregulated people that you give your free will all offering to those unregulated people who have no authority to force your offering, but they have the authority to manage it. So then we have this sprinkling of blood that we see in uh, in verses down there, verses 8, where blood is sprinkled on the altar and blood is, blood is sprinkled on the people. So what they're saying is this is a division. Life is in the blood. So this is a symbol again of the life of the people which is contained in those sacrifices. 
you know, they, they give an animal, uh, they give uh, some sort of, you know, a sheep, a bullocks, or, or something that they're sacrificing. Their life's blood went into producing this animal, into feeding it and raising it and protecting it. And now they're taking that lifeblood that was a part of them, a domestic creature that they owned, and they are giving it to these living stones represented by this stone altar. And then Moses goes around with his basins, and half of the blood he sprinkles on the altar, which is that, is that on the stones? Well, he may have done that on the stones, as I'm fine with that symbolism of his actions. But he may be also sprinkling it on the individuals who are represented by the altar. The individuals who man the altar, who receive the sacrifices of the people. And so what he's saying is, they have a power over the blood (laughs) of the sacrifice. That's what he is symbolizing. I am giving them the power over this sacrifice. And I'm going to put some of the blood on the altar, on the stones, and the living stones, and the unhewn stones. And that symbolizes that they have power over this. That's a burnt offering. The people have given up their burnt offering. That It's not in their hands anymore. But he also takes some of this blood that where the life is in the blood. And he symbolically sprinkles it on the people. And he says, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. You, as the people, now have the power of choice over what you're going to give, how you're going to give it, when you're going to give it. Now, that there are going to be verses that talk about you know, you let the shoot decide. You know, it's every tenth sheep. You, but you also aren't supposed to give the crippled sheep and the sick sheep. And the, you're supposed to give things that are of value. Don't skimp on that. I heard a story. Of, we had a fire here. And that we, we've created one of the largest in this county, one of the largest rural fire departments. Uh, decide, maybe in the United States. I don't know. It's huge. And... Uh, has, you know, all kinds of trucks and equipments and everything, and it's completely voluntary. And, you know, you can pay into it, you can subscribe to it, but it's not built with any specific tax dollars. And it puts out fires. I mean, it puts out, you know, probably a hundred fires a year uh, that would have without it, probably would have often got out of control. It's a rangeland fire department. And we have a lot of rangeland out here. But they were fighting a fire, and they needed to, the Forest Service was also on the fire. And so they were bringing in helicopters that was bucketing water out of a pond so that they could drop it on the fire line. And it was threatening the biggest town around, which isn't that big a town, but it's, we're a big county with small uh, amount of people. And a, a guy who owned the pond comes in, and he's complaining that he's got to get paid for that water. Forest Service got to pay me for that water. He knows he can put in 
and they will pay him for that water. They estimate the number of buckets they pull out. But he comes in so belligerently saying that this, that the guy who's working for the Forest Service suddenly says, uh, we're not going to take any more water out of that pond. Now, they regularly, I mean, the money they spend is ridiculous, but they would easily pay for that water. I mean, it's not that expensive of water. But it was his belligerent attitude that he just suddenly decided, well, we're not going to take any more water from you because it sounds like you're all angry and upset. And other people were telling him to shut up. (laughs) This was a guy who hadn't even been out on the fire line to really help. He hadn't been using a shovel or any of his equipment to fight the fire. It's protecting his property as well as everybody else's. And uh, he has this belligerent attitude. That comes from almost a hundred years of legal charity in society. And I, you know, I know some of these, I know their father, I know their grandfather, (laughs) and I know the history of their great-grandfather. And it's just passed down from generation to generation that there, if you practice Certain things in your life, this will get passed down to your children. This is why honor thy father and thy mother so that your days will be long upon the land. Is that if you take care of your father and your mother, your kids are more likely to take care of you. So that, that's, that's just, that's the explanation of honor thy father and thy mother. That was another thing that came up again. They're talking about that word honor, uh, to means to make heavy. Well, it actually, if if you're a sheep herder and you want to make your sheep heavy, you make sure they get lots of food. You get make sure they get the right food. You make sure they don't have to walk 10 miles, 20 miles a day to get that food. And then they will get heavy. In other words, it also means to fatten. And when it says that you could get the death penalty, and we've talked a little bit about this, If you curse your parents, the word curse there is to make light. You know, to make them skinny. Not take care of them. So, it doesn't mean, you know, say bad words about your parents. It doesn't, and honor them doesn't mean obey your parents. Because your parents may tell you to do stuff when you're grown up that you shouldn't be doing. But, when you're grown up and old and need help, your kids should be taking care of your parents. And this actually, and actually Jordan Peterson will get into this, they're discovering that this actually marks your DNA that will be passed on to your children. There's actually, in your epigenetics, it'll actually mark that DNA. I haven't looked in, well we have, we do have programs that talk about this, but I haven't looked into the particular research that he mentions in his, uh, I guess it would be their episode 12, but these patterns of behavior that Moses is teaching the people, these judgments, not laws, the judgments of Moses, the precepts of Moses, the principles that Moses is sharing with the people, is giving the people choice. And we'll get into that more and explain that more and more. And that's exactly what Christ was doing. That's exactly what Herod was taking away from the people, was choice. That's what 
uh, the Pharisees were taking away from the people choice. And it's what a lot of people on the, uh, on Jordan Peterson's panel seem to not grasp is that if, if all these so-called statutes of Moses, the 613 statutes of Moses, are actually statutes or laws or ordinances or he's codifying the law, then it is, it will be, you will be bound by the letter of the law when you do this consenting. And they're going to seal this consent in a sacrifice. But when he makes the sacrifice, which we know comes from the young men uh, of the society are bringing this sacrifice, he's going to take the blood of that sacrifice, which we know because Moses tells us that the life is in the blood, and he's going to sprinkle some on the altar and some on the people. So what he's doing is saying that choice remains with the altar as to what they can do with what they receive on their altar. Those living stones will receive the sacrifices of the people and how they redistribute it will be up to them. They have, they are sprinkled with the blood, the right, the life of that, but it's a shared responsibility. And so he also sprinkles the people with the blood. From the sacrifice. Saying. By this act. That the power of choice of the people. Remains with the people. The Levites have no power. To force taxation. On the people. Like they had in the bondage of Egypt. Because Moses is creating. A different system. He is setting the captive free. He's not bringing them into a new captivity. And and that's a very simple principle. It's repeated over and over again in the biblical text. Not only in, in the Torah, but also in the prophets, which we've gone through. Also in the New Testament. The New Testament is taking care of the needy of society through pure religion, through free will offerings we call charity. Even fervent charity. But the world is taking care of their needy through forced offerings. And Moses is showing them how this system works. In each chapter, you get pieces of the puzzle. And so, in this very symbolic chapter 24, we're seeing this blood sprinkled, this rite of choice, this life of the sacrifice, still remaining with the people because there's going to be another sacrifice next week. Or down the road somewhere. And that sacrifice is going to be at first in the hands of the people 100%. Until they give it to the altars. And then it's going to be 100% in the hands of the altars. So what you have is a society that is empowering the people to make choices. They have the power of choice. That power of choice in the New Testament is called excusia or exousia. It's, it's that power to decide what you're going to give, what you're not going to give. And Paul talks about that. As a matter of fact, he talks about that in Romans 13. If you don't already know what I'm talking about, 
Go look up Romans 13 at preparing you and see what those words are actually saying there. And Moses is doing this. The blood, the people have a power of choice and the altars, the unhewn altars have a power of choice. The people don't have any power over those unhewn altar stones and the stones don't have any power over each other either because they can't hew each other. They just have to figure out how to fit together to become that altar. You know, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 of the elders of Israel. They have to figure out how to fit together. All the individual altars as the people organize in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. They have to figure out how to fit together without chiseling each other, without regulating each other without controlling the choices of each other. You have freedom of speech, but you don't have, you don't go up by steps. And and that was one of the things that they still haven't figured out. They're going to come across it some more, I assume, as they go through this. But the kingdom of God, the ministers don't go up by steps. And we've talked about that in the video that we put up uh Recently at uh, His Holy Church YouTube site. And you can go. And we'll, we'll be talking about it because it's something that they just seem to gloss over. They just miss. So, they talk about also Moses and these guys going up. And some having to tarry. And, and they're going up on the mountain. They're going to get closer. and But the power of the people... Yeah, in verse 14, they talk about some of them, tarry ye here for us until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man have any matter to do, let him come unto them. So what are they coming unto? Aaron, are you going to rule over us? Are you going to tell us what we have to do? Hur, are you going to rule over us and tell us what you have to do? No. There, if you if you have questions, you can go to those guys, and uh, that works for a while. But uh, anyway, so that's what I wanted to bring in uh, is this, and one other thing that I just added to the site this morning on verse seven, and it talks that uh, all that the Lord has said, will you do, and be obedient. And I didn't realize this, or at least in my recollection, I didn't realize it until I just heard them talking about it in their episode 12, is that that word obedient is actually shama. Uh, and I, I might have seen it once before, but all of a sudden it connected, and this is the way it is. This is why I kind of do some rabbit trailing, because there are lots of people out there, and little pieces of these puzzles will... You've probably heard them before, but then all of a sudden they will connect and then you'll have this other piece. But what they're saying is that we will do and hear. Because the word there actually is here. There is a few extra letters there. Bob Noon is added to the, the front. We'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom.
Well, welcome back to Keys to the Kingdom. So just before the break, we were talking about this word, we will do and be obedient. And the word obedient there is shama, which is the word for hear. It's almost always translated here. Although this particular variant of shama that is, like I said, Bob Nun shama, which is Shen uh, Mem uh, Ayan. And so, yeah, it means here, and it has this uh, Nun in it, which has to do with ongoing hearing. It's not what I, I heard you talking about at the beginning of this chapter or for the last several chapters, but I will continue to hear because it's, it's the Nun, the, the swimming fish. And I will separate out that hearing, the Vav, I will hear continuously. So what is he hearing? Because they just said, I will do and I will hear. Wouldn't you say, I will hear and I will do? No. What they're saying, and this is a, this really an interesting way in which the, the order makes a difference, is that by doing this act of responsibility of making these choices of what I'm going to sacrifice, when I'm going to sacrifice, because all the feasts, you're supposed to go there and give gifts to the Levites and to the priests and into the house of the Lord. It all goes in there. You don't all just take it and pile it up at the door. You you take it and you give it to the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Your minister's there. You give it to this minister, and then he gives a percentage of it up to the next minister, up to the next minister, and some of it ends up into the house. It's all in the house of the Lord when you set it on the altar. And there are lots of altars because there are lots of groups of ministers providing the social safety net of Israel out there in the desert. Because they need that social safety net to take care of the needy of society. They had a huge social safety net over there in Egypt. Uh, That's how they got in the bondage of Egypt, is they didn't have a social safety net out there with uh, Jacob and Joseph. They had sold Joseph off into slavery, so Joseph was unable to tell them that a famine was coming. And so they were not prepared for the famine. But he did tell the Pharaoh, so the Pharaoh was prepared for the famine. So when the famine came, they had they had to go to the Pharaoh. They had to go to the Pharaoh to get grain. And so they they go there to get that grain from the Pharaoh and they end up running out of money. All the Egyptians run out of money because the famine lasted a long time and everybody had, if you wanted to eat, you had to sell yourself indentured to the Pharaoh, to the government of Egypt. Everybody did. Everybody but the priests. Important item. Not necessarily for this point, but it does come into play. Because there were priests, theoretically, amongst the Israelites. And so who was the priest of the family in the Israelites? Ah, that's a that's a question you can explore on your own. But we know Aaron knew the arts of the temple, so evidently he was had something to do with the priesthood in Egypt 
for the people of Israel in Goshen. Because he knew the arts of the temple. And that's the way they did things there. And they did them that way so because the government of the Pharaoh was the social safety net of the people. And they had to pay in 20% of their labor to keep funding that social safety net. And so now they don't have that. But they still have to pay in. But there's nobody, there's no taskmasters to force them to pay in. So when they have a feast, when they have a gathering every week, they give something to their ministers to help take care of the needy of society, which we see James talking about in the New Testament, which he calls pure religion. That you take care of the needy, the widows, the orphans, the needy of your society, unspotted by the world, and he uses the word world there that means constitutional order and system of government. Their constitution and order and system of government now includes these sacrifices, these peace offerings, these burnt offerings that we see in verse 5. And that's how they're going to take care of the needy of their society. But they say, we will do that. And we will hear continuously, which they translate obedient. What are they going to hear? Continuously. Moses is trying to show them a way in which they will draw near God. Because the word Corbin comes from a Hebrew word that means draw near. And the word Corbin is your free will sacrifice. It wasn't free will anymore under Herod and the Pharisees. Which is why it was making the word of God did not affect. Because under Herod and the Pharisees it became what we call legal charity. It was provided by the government to men who not only exercise authority one over the other, but they go up by steps. Because they go up by steps, they can regulate the people below them. You see, now when you start putting all these together, and I'm hoping that someday these panelists will put all these things together, and that lots of other people will begin to hear this and realize that you are not going to have any solution for your loss of liberty in the land today until you start doing and hearing. It's a, it's a, it's an event that must take place where you do and hear. Because when you do, and we'll talk about this a lot when we get into at least the first part of their episode 12. When you do, something changes in you. And it works the other way too. When you covet your neighbor's goods, it changes you. It alters you. Polybius knew it. Plutarch knew it. Uh Philosophers knew it. Poets knew it. That what you do changes you. And so he's saying that now the choice is in the hands of the people. They take some object and they give that to the altars. The stones of the altar. And then that object now, the power of choice over that object that you have given is now in the hands of the stones of the altar. It's in their hands. 
But then the next time the people give, they choose. See, in Egypt, you didn't do that. You made a choice back there when there was a famine. You made a choice back when there was FDR around. That I'm going to look to the government to provide me with my social safety net. And that's what the Israelites are doing. They were looking to Pharaoh to provide them with their social safety net. And that's what brought them into the bondage of Egypt. Now, they don't have that. So they have to individually choose. They no longer had a choice. They had to give 20% of their labor. And then, you know, taskmasters come up and start calculating that. Jesus talks about this calculating of what you owe society. You owe the government of God. You have to calculate it. And and you can calculate it. If it's like 10% or 20% or whatever... You can say, well, yeah, I owe this much. But he instructs his ministers that whatever you tell them you owe and you can pay, you can do, that that minister must count it as paid in full. He can't say, well, you know, you really ought to give more. No, he could say that, but he can't make you pay. It's a different kind of government. It's a peculiar government, which is why they became a peculiar people. If you think you're a Jew today and you're not doing that, you're not that peculiar. You're just like everybody else. You may wear a little different clothes. You may have a different accent. But you're just like everybody else. Because everybody else, like at the time of John the Baptist, everybody was establishing their utopia, their kingdom of heaven, by force. It was John the Baptist who said, no, you do it by sharing. And that's what Moses is saying. And he's saying the responsibilities of these choices, what to share with whom, if you're going to have these altars, these living altars, you give him entirely. Now, he has the blood that was in that offer. And now he has the power to decide. Next week, if he doesn't do a good job, you don't have to give him anything. That's not the way it was with the Pharaoh, which they clearly show us, but a lot of people don't make the connection. The original Pharaoh was said, Joseph is in charge. Whatever Joseph does, that's okay with me, because this guy is a good guy, and we're going to put Joseph in charge. But then came a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. He wasn't so good. Some of them might have been a little senile, for all I know. Start making all kinds of, you know, going around sniffing people's hair. Who knows what he was doing. (laughs) So, anyway, that's what happens when you give the power of your choice to somebody else. Which is, you're not to do. One of the things that you're supposed to put into your constitution... They can never do anything to return you to the bondage of Egypt. That's not actually in the Constitution of the United States. They never put it in those words. But the reality is everybody that's on that panel, most everybody out there listening to me, are back into a bondage worse than the bondage of Egypt. They don't just have to give 20% of their labor. They have to give a lot more of their labor. And... That's not a good thing. 
that that's a, that's a really bad thing. <laughs> but it's what you deserve because the government didn't put you in the bondage of Egypt. You put yourself in by turning the social social safety net of what should have been in your communities, your churches, and your and your love for one another. That should have been your social safety net. But instead, you didn't have that. You turned your religion into what you think about God instead of how you perform your duty to God and your fellow man. That was the definition 200 years ago. Now you've changed it over the years to what you think about God. Now you got 40,000 different Christian denominations all thinking something different about God. But if they need anything for the widows and orphans, that's the government's job to do that. They not only have done that, they got the government taking care of their parents so that they don't have to do any more odd for their parents because they got the Corbin of Herod. I mean, the Corbin of FDR. I mean, Social Security or Social Insurance or whatever you want to call it, whatever country you are. Which, And then you wonder why your children don't care about you. Why your children are so rebellious? Well, why they don't think they owe you anything? They never saw you taking care of your parents. You sent them off to the government to take care of. So you know, I don't see these. They they touch on them. They walk around. I started referring to it as the elephant in the room. I'm now going to call it the leviathan in the room. <laughs> that they they don't. Make that connection when they talk about usury, which we'll get into. It's not in this chapter, so we won't go into it. It's, I'm astounded. I'm absolutely astounded that they don't make the connections that they need to make. But we're going to make them here at His Holy Church, and we're going to put it on video, and we're going to put it on on these podcasts, and we've been doing it so that everybody can hear. But it'll be up to you to to share these uh, podcasts and these uh, radio broadcasts with as many people and the pages because we put the recordings eventually up on on the different pages. But let's go on to 25. Now 25 could be a little bit boring. Uh, it's it's not, you know, it's the contributions for the sanctuary. But there's some real gems here, and they and that's I'm I. I could talk about all the individual symbolism of the gold and the silver and the brass and all these things and the stones and what they represent. And a lot of them are mentioned later on. The candlesticks, the Ark of the Covenant. We'll talk a little bit about the Ark as well. Uh, I'll give you a little kind of little tidbits that a lot of people are unaware of. I mean, it's been around for a long time on things like the ark and why it was constructed and what it was doing and uh, but I'm going to leave a lot of blank spaces so that you have something to discover on your own. But it starts out of course verse 1 and the Lord spake unto Moses saying so this is what God the Lord Yahweh is saying to Moses speak unto the children of Israel and that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly, with his heart, ye shall take my offering. So, who's taking the offering? 
Is God sitting there at the tabernacle door and he's saying, okay, yeah, oh, thanks for this. Okay, oh, No, you're giving it to this network. Everybody isn't going to go up to the tabernacle and give this. And the tabernacle isn't really built yet. But it, you're bringing it to God. And some of these offerings are going to be used to actually build this tabernacle. Which, there's some unique things about the tabernacle that you lose when you created a temple. Uh, it was very interesting to me when I first discovered because I had always, this is the big question, what are they doing in all these pagan temples? been asking this for half a century and more. Quite a bit more than half a century. And nobody was giving me the answer. So, I mean, I prayed to God and lo and behold, he starts showing me what they were doing in these temples. <laughs> and now we're trying to show it to you. But the original temples weren't buildings. There was no buildings. Uh, the, the original idea of temples, what we call temples, was an area. It was a location. It was a place. And sometimes, you know, up in the north, there would be a certain grove of trees. They would pick some grove of trees that had the oldest, you know, a grove that had the oldest trees. And they would gather there in those trees. And that would be like their temple. And so that there will be talk later in the Bible of cutting down their groves because that was their temples. But it wasn't because they were trees that they had to cut them down. They're not supposed to overthrow their temples by cutting down trees. They were to do it by showing them the superior system of of temples that are operating on faith, hope, and charity. And in different points in time in history, if you go up amongst the Teutons and everything, they had this idea of uh, temples that uh, were, you know, places that were all based on charity. And then they got away from that. This is a common tendency in man. And once they get away from that, now they're doing something different. It's not a free will offering. It's a forced offering. And it can kind of creep up on you. It changes you. It alters you. Like Polybius says, it degenerates you. It weakens you as a people. So you, And there's two ways to not have the free will offering. One is to neglect it. And just not do it. And the other one is to start to force it or impose it on people. Both of those things will cause a degeneration in society. It has to be a free will offering. So if you want to create any alternative to the new world order, you have to remember that. You have to stick a pin in that and remember it. So this is what he's saying in that verse too. The offering must be given willingly with his heart. Not out of guilt. <laughs> not out of shame. Uh, not out of force, for sure. Have you degenerated already that your offerings are by force? Whoa. Yeah, that, you've, you've got to the bottom of the barrel. Well, of course, that's where everybody in every country has gotten. And, uh, Ye shall take my offering. So, whoever takes the offering, these living stones of the altars that they're going to be building, the altars of clay and altars of stone are living altars. They're going to receive the offerings of the people because everybody's not going to walk all the way to the tabernacle. 
that has to be willingly. That is probably the most essential thing to understand in Exodus 25. In verse 3, And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass. A lot of people say, oh, you can't make all, uh, offerings. It has to be, you know, it can't be money. Well, gold and silver and brass was money. <laughs> it's just commodity money. It's a commodity. Goat, goat hair, linen, uh, purple, scarlet, blue, cloth and threads. That's all commodity money. You can trade that. Ram skins, dyed red. And badger skins. We'll talk a little bit about badger skins because it has nothing to do with badgers. That has nothing to do with porpoises. That's another interpretation. Of course, there are not, they are not a lot of porpoises out where they're at. But, uh, and shittim wood. Wood. Actually wood. I, I unloaded $3,500 worth of wood yesterday for somebody else, a neighbor. That, that wood actually came all the way from Canada. It was clear. Uh, straight line, uh, dug fur. But, uh, yeah, so that's, that has value. It, it's not a piece of paper. It actually has value. You can do all kinds of things with it. They talk about oil to light, spices for anointing oils, which of course is like your essential oils. And sweet incense. And of course I, I should make that a live link so that you find out what incense is because there is Incense the thing and incense the metaphor. There is rams the thing and rams the metaphor. There's the butt of the ram, the kidney of the ram. These are all metaphors, but they are also real things. This is so common throughout the language of, uh, of the Hebrews that it's astonishing that people think that you actually have to build an altar of unhewn stones. You actually have to go get a red heifer cow and sacrifice it. Those are all representative objects. They're metaphors trying to teach you spiritual precepts. But the spiritual precepts require that you do them the precepts require that you do them. Lots of different forms doing the same thing once you understand what the thing is that you're doing will alter you. Just as if you don't do them, if you do them a different way, if you do them like Pharaoh, if you do them like FDR, if you do them like LBJ, if you do them like Putin, it's going to alter you too. It's going to change you as a person. So anyway, all kinds of things are acceptable as this offering. You know, if if you're a weaver and you make linen cloth, that's probably what you're going to bring to the temple. If if you are a purveyor of oils and you gather oils and press oils, that's probably what you're going to bring to the temple. It's not everybody's not going to bring sheep, but what's going to be the same for everybody is it's a free will offering. It's not a free will offering. You're not getting closer to the God. You're not getting closer to the kingdom. And so anyway, he goes on to say, according to all that I have shown you, uh, shown thee after the patterns of the tabernacle and the patterns of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. So, the patterns. He's talking about patterns. 
Again, all these objects are metaphors, and we won't go into all of them because we'll try to get all the way through this. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Uh, shittim wood is probably like an oak wood. Uh, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof. And if you're a real big mathematician, all this plays into it. Because mathematics is a language of its own, but we're not going to go there. And the cubit and a half of the breadth thereof, and the cubit and a half the height thereof, and thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. Within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. So, we're doing all kinds of layers of gold and actually layers of shittim wood and layers of gold and all about it again. And you can pound out gold to just a leaf thickness. It's not like a poured plate. It could be just as thin as a thinner than a piece of paper. And, uh, and that, that was a real thing that uh, people can still do it today. Uh, you know, plate things with gold, plate things with silver. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it and put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be in one side of it and two rings in the other side. Now, some of this has a very practical purpose, which we'll see, or maybe many of us have already seen. But, there also may be symbolism in it. And they go on and they say, And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the side of the ark, and that ark may be born with them. So this, these rings are going to, that's the utilitarian purpose. So it could be born. But again, this there could be symbolism in this as well. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. So the testimony is what everybody wants to call laws and are actually just judgments and precepts. If, you know, if you, I've read lots and lots of statutes in California. I, behind me I have a thousand statutes or more written in books. We'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom. Welcome back. We were just talking about the testimony that was put inside the Ark of the Covenant. And it was built out of this layers of gold and layers of acacia wood or shittim wood. And, uh, and they were constructing this Ark. And then they'll, they'll be talking here in verse 20 about the mercy seat, which is like a lid. Uh, actually, in, I think it's first mentioned in uh, verse 19. The mercy seat you'll make with cherubs on the top. And we don't know exactly what those cherubs look like. There's a lot of artist renditions of it. But there's something sticking up there that seemed to have wings of some sort. And it's on this mercy seat, which is like a lid on the top of the ark. It has doors in the side, but you put this lid on the top of the ark. And supposedly God is going to appear to them or be able to communicate with them through this Ark of the Covenant. 
for a period of time. And of course, we also know that they they were still had the cloud that they were following, that that was looked like a pillar of smoke in the daytime and a pillar of fire at nighttime. And whatever that is, they they talked to somebody inside that, uh, and that was giving Moses a lot of instructions. It was protecting them, guiding them through the desert. But now they were going to have this Ark of the Covenant, and supposedly they could still communicate with God through that. But the key thing is that they're they're doing this free will offering thing. And they have this mercy seat. And there will be a thing called the Day of Atonement where people go. If you wanted to have an atonement for things that you did wrong, before you went to the tabernacle to atone for it with your peace offering or whatever, your sacrifice, you had to go to the guy who you wronged. And confess to him that you're wrong. And apologize or whatever it is that you did. And that's very important. And of course that's exactly what Christ is saying. Everybody says we're safe. Everybody says that Jesus is the mercy seat. You know he's taken his blood to the heaven. And anointed the mercy seat in heaven. And all this stuff. And so we're all saved by the blood. But Jesus says if you don't forgive. Neither will my father forgive you. And you really haven't forgiven somebody. If you're not. You know, you're supposed to, we just saw where you were supposed to be taking care of your enemy's ox. If you find your enemy's ox or his ass in a ditch, you're supposed to get it out. If it's, it's crushed under its burden, you're supposed to help it up and, and return it to him. And that's your enemy. And, and those people who hate you, you're supposed to do that with. So, that the same goes for forgiving. You have to forgive. You have to still take care of the needy of your society. But you have to take care of them in a way that strengthens the poor. And that's another verse that you're not to favor the poor. If you had a billionaire in, if you were on a jury in the court and there was a billionaire there with a complaint and there was a poor man with a complaint, you're not to favor the poor man. You're, you're supposed to be blind to whether he's a poor. The fact that he's poor does not give him preferential treatment. It may mean that you have to, you know, separate from the court case, you may have to give him some help. But justice is the same for the poor and for the rich. You can't favor them. And the social justice warriors of today think that, no, that you get a privilege if you're a poor. You get a special consideration of your poor. That's absolutely the opposite of what Moses is saying. Because if you do that, you're not being merciful to that poor person. You're actually weakening him. And so this mercy seat requires that in order for you to obtain the mercy, you have to care about others and communicate that care in your deeds and in your words. So this is very important. That mercy, see, all this is symbolism for what you're supposed You're supposed to be the Ark of the Covenant. You're supposed to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and in order to get that way, you're going to need layers of flesh and gold. And flesh and gold. Yeah, which you can call, you can symbolize as the wedding garments. And that wedding garments comes because you do and you hear. And... And that do. What are you supposed to be doing? 
Well, you're not supposed to be coveting your neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority or through men who go up by steps. You're supposed to be taking care of one another, faith, hope, and charity. If you're doing the former, you're going to be blinded. You're not going to see bad things coming. Uh, As a matter of fact, you're going to promote bad things. You're going to destroy the poor. You're going to destroy your society. You're, You're going to bring everything down so that everybody is poor. You'll actually formulate plans like Cloward and Piven who are so blind that they don't see that they are destroying everything and they're, they're, you know, if they had children, if they had cousins or nephews, or they had neighbors, they're going to destroy the world for them with their strategy of legal charity and getting everybody, all the poor on legal charity, to bankrupt the nation. Been going on for years, decades and decades. You're you're not in a war. You're coming to the end of the war. And many of you are on the wrong side of that war. And so you're going to have to repent, think differently. And boy, am I telling you how to think differently. And Moses was too. And But a lot of people are missing what Moses was saying. So, one of the things that came to my attention over the years, people have done experiments with it. They've taken thin slices of wood veneer and they put like gold on it and uh, they've also used other uh, substances other than gold because gold's rather expensive but they're just making a little tiny uh, arc uh, same dimensions but much smaller and what they discovered that it worked like a fair not a Faraday box but a, a capacitor where it stored up a charge inside it so that you literally if you touched it and you grounded yourself you could receive an electrical shock if it was as big as they're saying and they had enough of these layers upon layers and they were fitted all together and you had these wing, winged angels or antennas or whatever on the top and it began to store enough energy. If you wanted to move it, you're going to have to put in staves through rings and special shoes and carry it with. And of course, that's what we see down there in verse 27. Again, the border shall, uh, when they're talking about the table of wood, shall the rings be for a place for staves to bear the table so that nobody can touch it. And, of course, there's the scene where it started falling over because somebody was stumbling and, and a guy reaches up to try to stop it from falling and he touches it and he's struck dead. Well, he wasn't struck dead by God. He was struck dead by an electrical current, evidently, coming out of the object. And you were told not to touch it because of the fact that it was dangerous. And, uh, you know, just like you're not supposed to stick tweezers in plug sockets. Because it's dangerous. And I make that rule for my kids. I don't actually tell them. If you tell them, they're likely to do it. But uh, when they were little, we made sure that they did not do that kind of thing. And until we could explain to them. I actually had a tweezers in my possession for a long period of time that was much shorter than it was when it was manufactured because my brother did that. He stuck a tweezers in a plug socket and discovered that that's a bad idea. But uh, anyway, this is what all these laws are. That thou shalt not do that. Don't kill, don't murder, 
uh, don't covet your neighbor's goods through social welfare systems set up by FDR and LBJ or whoever you are in whatever country you're at. Don't covet your neighbor's goods to those men who can exercise authority. Jesus said that. Because it's going to alter you. It's a bad idea. It's going to create a current that's going to keep you from hearing. If you don't do what God is saying here through Moses, you're not going to hear. And and if you covet your neighbor's goods and you pick a king and he take you let him take and take and take and take and take so you can have all kinds of free stuff when you cry out god will not hear you that's that's just repeated over and over again in the the holy scriptures but it's also repeated over and over again amongst philosophers and uh, teachers and historians and other religions and buddha saying many of the same things so anyway, rather than read every single thing here, oh, candlesticks, six branches shall come out of the side of it, three branches of the candlesticks out of one side, and three branches of the candlestick out of the other side. And of course, this ends up being the menorah that we all know. Three bowls made like unto almonds. They have a bowl made of a certain shape uh, with a knop and a flower in one branch and three bowls made like almonds in the other branch. But these are all symbolic. And of course, one of the things that you need to have in you as the Ark of the Covenant, as the temple of the Holy Spirit, is that you need a light in you. And they're talking about these, the, this menorah, these uh, three branches on one side and and three on the other side and everything. These are symbolic again of the light is in you. And we could go through them and, and do all kinds of studies on them. But we won't need to do that if you actually start doing what God is saying. Don't get lost in the metaphors. Don't start to say, oh, well, we got to build an Ark of the Covenant. You know, we got to uh, get a case of wood and, or shittim wood and, and cover it with gold, and we've got to do all these things. If you start thinking that way, next thing you know, you're going to say, well, we need a red heifer so that we can have a sacrifice, and, and we need to have altars of unhewn stone, and then we'll have to kill a sheep and set it on fire and burn it up, and the red heifer and burn it up. No, you don't have to do any of that stuff. Those are symbols of what you need to do, which is to start taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. To be fervently charitable in a network of people that are trying to give their neighbor a choice, not take the choice away from their neighbor. So, all these other things, you know, and look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. So, there was a time there where they were showing them all this pattern. There, There is no schematics for us to follow. So, we don't know, you know, we can kind of picture what they're talking about. But the pattern you want to follow is this pattern of caring about others. This is what Christ was. Christ's life was this pattern of laying down his life for his fellow man. And we've tried to give you a lot of explanations of how that worked. So, 
Uh, I, I mentioned that we would talk about badger skins just briefly. That this word badger skin, this has been kind of one of those things that for years and years and years, nobody seemed to get what that was, especially amongst the Christians. But there's actually a great deal of evidence. There's a uh, uh, Oxford uh, a seriologist who studies Assyria, uh, Stephanie uh, Daly, and I mentioned her on here. But uh, she says that this is uh, these badger skins are actually beadwork. And what you do is you, you make all these beads and then you string either leather thongs through it or camel hair through it. So none of the camel hair is exposed to the weather because it's inside these ceramics, these uh, facians uh, beads. And so you, if you bead that all together, you can make a cloth that is very heavy. If you hung it over a tent, you wouldn't have all that flapping that you see with nylon. And that flapping is what tears it apart because it's constantly whipping in the wind. You'd also cut out sun exposure to all the cloth that's underneath that. And uh, it would make it a much more stable structure because it would add this weight. And, you know, if you got a really big whirlwind, it wouldn't just pull the canvas off and everything. And so, that beaded work is probably what they're talking about when they say badger skins. There's lots of ancient, uh, there's cloaks made this way, there's sandals made this way, because the, the sole of the sandal, you know, if you made it out of leather, it would start wearing away on rocky ground. and so, so, they would actually make these beaded sole sandals. You know, they have leather straps over the top, but the sole of the sandal would these, be these beads. And they would they would stand up uh, rigorously to a lot of abuse. And that that's basically what I believe the badger skins are. You don't have to believe that. Uh, but they're not even supposed to touch badgers, so how are they getting the skins? So, anyway, it is absolutely foundational in the kingdom... Uh, that the children of Israel bring God an offering, and that offering has to be given willingly. And, of course, we see them strain for that when they decide to have a king, and King Saul does a foolish thing, uh, which he forces an offering. He forces the Corbin of the people to support his uh, army, and, of course, Herod is doing it to support their welfare system, their social safety net, and the Pharisees are a part of that. And, of course, that makes the word of God to none effect because it's not a free will offering anymore. And along comes John the Baptist and says, no, we're not going to do it by force. Everybody else is. Rome's doing it this way. Most of the Greek city-states are doing it this way. We're not going to do it this way. We're going to do it by charity. Sharing. You have two coats and your neighbor has none. Share. And you have to do this in an efficient way. And, of course, he's baptizing people. He's organizing them into the tens, hundreds, and thousands because everybody knew the Jews at that time were organized in that way. That's what a synagogue was, ten families, ten elders of families. And so that's what they're doing. That's not what people are doing today. They got their denominations. They think they, they got the blood of Jesus. But they they say, well, wait a minute. These are They owe us Social Security. It's an entitlement. No, it's not an entitlement. News people say that it's an entitlement. The news people also say that the vaccination stops COVID. (laughs) 
makes you immune to COVID. That's what the media said. Uh, they said it just doesn't go any farther. You can't get it if you get the, the vaccination. And we're going to call it a vaccination, even though technically it wasn't. And so all that went on. You fell for all that. And, and you probably also fell for the idea that Constitution of the United States... Uh, the Bible is a constitutional document, yet the five things that it says to put in your constitution, they didn't put in the Constitution of the United States. It's a great document. I think the world of some of these guys who put it there, I'm not tearing it down. I'm just saying, one of the things they do say in episode 11 is that all these rules, they call them laws, but all these judgments of Moses... If you follow them, you will constitute yourself as a community. It's a covenant, but you will be constituted together. You will create the social bonds of a free society and that will constitute your government. But you would have to really be doing what the precept is representing, the, the, the Symbols of the precepts are represented. And you'd have to really be taking care of the needy of your society through faith, hope, and charity. You would have to be sitting down in juries that had the power to decide fact and law, looking at the precedent, because that's what the judgments of Moses are, their precedent. These are, that's what it actually says. It doesn't say these are the laws of Moses. It says these are the judgments of Moses. This is, and you see the way he writes it down. Like I said, I started to say before that one of the end of a, uh, we went to a break is that I have all these statues behind me. They will tell you all kinds of statutes. You know, you have to do this and you have to do that. And they, they don't tell you why. Oh, they have a reason why somewhere. And you can probably look it up somewhere. But in the statute, it just says, you got to do it this way. And you got to do this. And you can't, you can't go over 55. And, and you can't, you know, whatever it is, all these rules, you have to do it this way. Because those are, those are laws in the form of statutes that are dictated from the top down. But God wants you to hear Him in your hearts. That's why you do and continuously hear from God in your heart. So that you know how to decide the cases that are brought before you, and you can attend to the weightier matters. Remember, Jesus condemned the Pharisees because they weren't attending to the weightier matters. And we know those weightier matters because he lists them off. Our law, judgment, mercy, and faith. And so, therefore, you're supposed to have, God, Christ is saying, you're supposed to have the power of jury nullification. Where when you sit and judge a case, because he said to the apostles, ye also are gods, which means ruling judges. If you're on a jury that you have not waived your right to decide fact and law, which every juror is asked to do in America, every juror is asked to do in Canada. The interesting thing is, that's in our constitutions, in the state constitutions, in the Supreme Court decisions, that the jury has the right to decide fact and law. And in every court today, they get you to waive that right before they'll let you sit on a jury. And I, you go look up jury at 
preparing you. We explain it. We show you. God wants you to have that right. He wants you to have that power of choice. But you still won't make the right choice if you're not doing these other things. Bringing these offerings to God, to these altars of clay and stone to take care of the needy of your society because you won't be creating the social bonds. They started getting you away from that in 1911, 1910. I could show you the history of it. Not only in this country, but in other countries. Australia was often a couple of years ahead of us. But FDR, the Social Security, you no longer had to be the doer of taking care of the needy through faith, hope, and charity. FDR is going to do it. The New Deal. The, the war on poverty. That was going to do it. That was a war on liberty. Because you were going back to the ways of Cain, Nimrod, and Solomon. You were making the error of the Nicolaitans and the error of Balaam. And you were becoming a conquered people. Like I said, this war's not coming. It's already been here for 50 years. You've been at war. And you have already become a conquered people. I'm, and now I'm coming on the scene and saying, you want to reverse that process? You have to reverse the way you're thinking. And all the stuff that they're missing in that panel of Exodus, you need to know. And we're going to keep sharing it with you so that you do end up knowing eventually. So all forms of forced sacrifice that produce benefits for the people will run to evil if you consent because they are deceitful meats which are the dainties of rulers. And I just read that off the page. There's like six links in that little statement to articles that explain every one of those because if you have an appetite for the benefits of rulers, which everybody in America just about has, uh, you, you're going to be running towards death, running towards evil, running towards destruction. So that's why we're at where we are, because that's what we've been doing. What should have been for your welfare has become a snare and a trap, and that's why you're back in the bondage of Egypt. So you may need a little bit of badger skin on you in order to hear that. You can't be too woke and too sensitive, but that's really important. But if we go on, we may go on here and just start with uh, Exodus 26, which is the tabernacle. And there's a lot of things in that as well. We're going to end up going to a break here in a minute, so I don't know how far I can get. But moreover, thou shalt make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue, purple, and scarlet and cherubims of cunning work shalt thou make them. What does that look like? Now, there's a lot of opinions as to what that looks like. But what does that symbolize? And represent fine, fine twined linen. You know, you're supposed to be sewing the breeches of your ministers out of linen. <laughs> Did you know that? <laughs> of course, we explain. That's so that they go up by steps. But they're not supposed to go up by steps. So why do we have to do that? But anyway, we'll talk about that later. But the length of one curtain shall be eight and twenty cubits. And the breadth of one curtain, four cubits and every one of the curtains shall have one measure. So, what does that mean? 
What, why is he going into all this particular stuff? And note that by the time Jesus came, they weren't doing this. They had a, they had a stone temple with golden doors and all kinds of chambers and, and what were they doing then? They also had a Corbin that was making the word of God in an effect and a laver that John the Baptist wouldn't use. He was out there at the Jordan River. But I don't see any evidence that he was building this tabernacle like is described here. But he had to know about these instructions. Where were the Essenes building a tabernacle like this? They weren't. Now, they were supposed to build this and it's put in there for some reason. But what does it really mean? Well, I'm not going to tell you exactly, but we will hit on a few things as we go down through the text. And uh, we'll have to do that, though, I think, when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Okay, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, in this Exodus 26, and they're talking about the building of this tabernacle, which was a tent. One of the key things about the tabernacle is it was mobile. It could be moved around, yet it was pretty substantial in its construction. Now, the Levites were supposed to put it together, uh, and I am sure that, you know, there were Levites in every village, in every town, and every city, multiple ones in every city. But uh, there were also some that were assigned to taking care of the tabernacle and putting it up. It didn't have to be thousands of Levites to do this, and they probably rotated into the job. Uh, and it was like, you know, for especially because it was moving around. When it would come into a different area of Israel, where it was in an area that was occupied mostly by one tribe, then the Levites of that tribe would be the ones helping put the tabernacle up and they would be meeting all these guys working with them and setting it all up but it there's nothing magical in the tabernacle itself it it's all symbolic it's people need things you know people like often a lot of people because they are weak they need things like flags and ceremonies to remind them, but the ceremonies and the and the flags and the tabernacle and the candlesticks are symbols of the spiritual kingdom that needs to be a reality within the hearts and minds of every individual. And as soon as you start making the symbol important, then you're unmooring the meaning from the symbol. And you are headed towards paganism and confusion and destruction. Because the spirit giveth life. And the symbols and the letter of the law do not. So anyway, they, they talk about the five curtains shall be coupled together one to another. And other five curtains shall be coupled together one to the other. And thou shalt make loops of blue upon the edge of one cur of the one curtain from the selvage in the coupling, and likewise shalt thou make in the uttermost edge of another curtain in the coupling of the second. So 
you know, are we following these instructions? Is it really important? Again, I believe there's symbols here. I don't know what they all are. I know I can guess what some of them are, but I'd have to go through every, you know, uh, Y50 tachets of gold, which are hooks, and, and couple the curtains together. So, but they're hooked together with these latches or tatches uh, or hooks made out of gold, which gold is very flexible. So, I mean, like, how thick are they? How strong are they? I mean, are they really supposed to hold anything together? But they have all this stuff that they put together, these curtains and the uh, hooks or tatches uh, to put this tabernacle together. And thou shalt make curtains of goat hair to be a covering upon the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shalt thou make. So there's layers and layers of these curtains, I guess. Uh, length of one curtain shall be 30 cubits and the breadth of one curtain 4 cubits and 11 uh, curtains shall be all of one measure and thou shalt... So he's going through a lot of detail to make these things. You know, and down in verse 11 and thou shalt make 50 hooks of brass. So now you're making some hooks of brass and putting the tatches into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be one. And the remnant that remaineth of the curtain of the tent, the half curtain and the remaineth shall hang over the back side of the tabernacle. So, a lot of detail in here. Not really enough detail to actually make it. Because you don't know how big are the hooks and what do the hooks look like and why are some gold, why are some brass. But they, of course, they had it for tradition for a long time while we make it like the guys made it 50 years ago because it's still here 50 years later. And if we need a new one, we just take one of the other ones and make it the same way. In 14, and thou shalt make covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and a covering above the badger skins. So they've got badger skins in here. That's a covering over the red dyed ram skins. Now ram skins are going to be a little bit tougher than a used skin. And I don't know if they're doing it with the wool on or the wool off. <laughs> Anyway, if they're dyeing it, you know, that it would look pretty impressive if it was dyed very bright red. But then you're covering that up with the badger skins. But it's making a pretty darn substantial structure. And you've got to haul this structure around. Of course, it's every month they move it to a different site. Basically, every month they move it to another site, to another part of Israel, to another location of a tribe. And now... Whoever is the highest going up according to rank amongst the Levites and the priests will be very much a part of setting it up in this area. When I say by rank, of course, this is the same rank that Jesus is talking about. The best servants of servants of servants of servants, because that's what the Levites are. They are your public servants. They are taking care of your social safety net that is funded by free will offerings. If 
If you want to go build a temple, if you want to have a feast at Tabernacles, go ahead and do it. But if you don't have a social safety net based on fervent charity and free will offerings, your ceremony, rituals and ceremonies have no spirit of God in them. You're just faking it. You're not doing it. That You have to do it. That's the only thing that will change you. Is that daily choice to sacrifice. Go ask a family man. Go ask a, a mother who's raised your children. It's sacrifice that produces the family that you produce. I know lots of families where the kids are grown up. They know nothing about being a family. Of course, the wife has had numerous partners. The husband has had numerous partners. If there's even a husband around. And uh, they may not even know who their natural father is. Uh, I know lots of people who don't know who their natural father is. How do they, how did they learn about family? Well, they can still learn about family, but you know what it will take? Sacrifice. You know, we've had people who are single and said, well, we don't have a family. Can we join your congregations? Join a family in the congregation and you'll be in the congregation. Why should we give some bachelor who's never had children or family? Doesn't that what it says? The ministers have to be the husbands of one wife? That They have to approve themselves with their family before they can even become a minister? Why is that? Because they have a record of sacrifice. Now you come along and you're a bachelor and you don't have a good record of sacrifice. You want to be a minister, an ordained minister. Well, you're not going to be able to hold the same position. Until you do the sacrifice. And, and, you know, it doesn't, they're not positions of power. It's not a rank of power. It's a rank of service. Different kind of government. Entirely. If you're creating a government still top down, going to be passing laws, making regulations, etc. No. I mean, you see, in the old common law, with the laws of precedent, they had no legislature. There were no statutes that anybody was passing. Now in England, they they mix common law. They it's a mix of precedent and statutes. And then they they will quote people enforcing statutes as if that's the same thing. But like I was saying before, the whole idea of jury nullification that came out of a British court under the Queen, under the King at that time. But it's it's Penn of Pennsylvania fame when he was tried because he violated the Continental Act of 1619. The jury decided fact and law. They went to jail for it. <laughs> but they decided fact and law. You don't do that anymore. But those cases that those juries decided fact and law become a part of that precedent. But you will not have liberty in the land until the people gather together to tend to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. And you will not be able to create the social bonds to gather together and do that unless you're taking care of the needy in pure religion. In other words, through charity alone, without the aid of government. Now, I fully admit that you're all so dependent upon government now that 
that will take years to make the transition, right? I mean, in my imagination, I can only see that it would take years to do that. But you may not have years. You may be really late in starting this. Because the battle rages on in our midst right now. So you have to turn around and start going the other way. So anyway, there's a few more verses in here on how to build the temple. Uh, where they talk about, and they shall be coupled together beneath, and they shall be coupled together above the head uh, of it, and one ring, thus shall it be for them both. They shall be for the corners. So, you know, one of the things about when they camp around the tabernacle, which we'll get to in other chapters, that's actually talking again about patterns and structures. And so again, all these things are symbols. So in verse 26, when we say, And thou shalt make bars of shittim wood, and five uh, for the boards of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the other side of the tabernacle. They're talking about building the structure. And down in verse 32, And thou shalt hang it up, Four pillars of shittim wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon the four sockets of silver. And thou shalt hang up the veil under the tatches. And thou mayest bring in thither within the veil uh, the ark of the testimony and that's what they're calling it, by the way, is the Ark of the Testimony, because the testimony is in it. You're supposed to be the Ark of the Testimony. And the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. And thou shalt put the mercy seat upon the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy place. And thou shalt set a table without the veil and a candlestick over against the table on the side of the tabernacle towards the south. And thou shalt put the table on the north side. And finally, and thou shalt make for the hanging five pillars of shittim wood and overlay them with gold. And their hooks shall be of gold. And thou shalt cast five sockets of brass for them. You know, overlaying these wooden pillars with gold it could create a lightning rod effect very easy. <laughs> so there's a lot of things going on here. But again, it's it's really all about symbolism. And yes, for a lot of people, it's something they can look at that's impressive, that they can gather around. It's going so that what happens because they're moving it around, the Feast of the Tabernacle is not in the same place every year. And, of course, we know that everybody in the nation did not go to the Feast of the Tabernacle every year. That that would mean that everybody would have to leave their homes, leave their fields, leave their flocks, or bring their flocks with them and all go to some central location. So, it's moving around, giving everybody access to this, but everybody comes to these festivals three times a year, and they do not come empty-handed. They come to give gifts, gratuities, and benefits to men who exercise charity, not exercise authority. 
new men who are in the business of service to create those social bonds of a society so that everybody can tend to the weightier matters in their local juries with faith, hope, and charity in their hearts. So every man is becoming the tabernacle. So anyway, this Exodus 26 is this a summary of the details of furnishing the tabernacle, building it, and you know the exact cubits and colors of each section of the tabernacle, etc. But the directions making a curtain or a veil were in, in in that we see in Exodus 30 and 35. The purpose of this curtain was to divide the holy place and the most holy place. Well, in you is supposed to be a holy place. And so, how do we make that division in you? Uh, the tabernacle is a mishkan, or what they call a mishkan, was a tent. It's a dwelling place. And it was a symbol of every man. It's supposed to be the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And if you lose sight of that, before you know it, like I say, you'll be out there looking for red calves and and trying to build temples and all this stuff. We should be beyond that. Not that, you know, I don't have any objection to somebody trying to build the the tabernacle if they want to do it. But if you're not already got a social safety net based on faith, hope, and charity, if you aren't already a student, every man was a student of the law to because he would be called, you know, elders of the family would be called upon to be juries in disputes in their community. Without that and administering that justice and mercy, the mercy through your social safety net and also through your judgments, but also justice in your judgments to protect the weak and protect the innocent and protect the people that people try to take advantage of. If you're not doing that, there's no point in building the temples and the buildings because you won't do it right. You won't get it right. God manifests his presence amongst the Israelites in this tabernacle as an outward sign of central uh, and a central symbol. And because it was mobile, it allowed the feast to be centered in a different tribal area every year. That I'm just reading from the side panel. But this tabernacle and the feasts uh, with the Levites and the priests formed this social safety net through these free will offerings, which were fervent charity made Israel a peculiar place. In order to do that, you know, I actually know somebody I just talked to yesterday that would not have anything to do with somebody uh, who's actually, well, he's actually in both valleys, you know, another big rancher. One rancher wouldn't have anything to do with another rancher because evidently they did something at one time that irritated him and he won't have anything to do with it. He ends up, he does do all kinds of things with his hired man. He isn't that bigoted, but he doesn't want to have anything to do with the other guy. Now, I know a lot of people, and some of them I don't want to do business with, but I will be just as friendly with them. And I, actually, I should be fair that this guy is often just as friendly. But uh, you, know, you have to ask the question a lot of times, are you friendly because you don't want the flack? <laughs> Are you friendly? Because you've actually forgiven them. You just don't trust them because they're not trustworthy people. Because they have problems. Uh, but this is a nation of people. 
they have to learn to get along with each other. Because they're, they're surrounded round about by other nations who are going to come against them eventually. And so that's actually what the red heifer is about, is to create allies in the nations round about you. It has nothing to do with a cow and nothing to do with the red hair. And if you don't believe me, go read our article on that. So, And uh, the same as the uh, golden calf has nothing to do with a statue made out of gold. It has to do with a creating a Federal Reserve Bank, a reserve fund, where the gold is not in your pocket. It's in some treasury. Jesus spoke against, don't put it in a treasury. Moses said, you don't put it in a treasury. Don't put it in a golden calf because that's what it was. You put it in your purse because that's going to make every citizen of Israel a keeper of the treasury. And see, every week, they have to make a personal choice to sacrifice from their purse to take care of the needy. You know, they weren't just taking care of the needy. You know, we give three times a year and then we don't give anymore. They give every week. And they give regularly. That's fervent charity. So that they can create a social safety net based on that charity, based on that power of choice, that personal sacrifice. And every week that reconfirms the character of Moses, the character of Christ, the character and the nature of God in those individuals. If you do it the other way, where you set up a system that forces the offering, Polybius will warn you that the masses would degenerate under such a system because the people would develop an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them at the expense of their neighbor and their neighbor's property. I mean, property tax, that's how you got your school. You, If you're going that way, and you have been for more than a century, you're headed for destruction. We've been going that way for a long time and it's catching up with you. Now your presidents are like monarchs. Your media is liars. And even though you may know the truth and you figured it out and you know all this stuff, you have very little you can do about it other than hide. You can't stand up together. You can't vote in some other Saul. You might go from Saul to David you know, have your, you know, I, would, I don't want to equate Ronald Reagan with David because Ronald Reagan, the spending went up. <laughs> but I, I couldn't expect anything different. I mean, he was introduced to the swamp as well. And I don't care who you elect, they're not going to change it. Governments will not change till people change. And people will not change until they change what they do. And when they change what they do, they might begin to hear the voice of the Lord in their heart and their mind. And then they'll know what to do. But until you do that, there's not much we can do for you. You you see, you bow down to the ruling judges of your system. Just before the program began, I heard more stuff about abortion clinics, what they call them, children clinics. Uh, uh, I don't remember whether it's something about children killing children. That's what they do here. They kill children because it's an abortion clinic. 
And I, I don't fault them for their, you know, their prayer vigils and trying to slow this down, but that is a symptom of legal charity for a hundred years. Uh, since 1933 at least. I mean, you had forms of legal charity even before that with your public education. Most public schools were financed mostly by donations and some by taxes. Now it's quite the reverse. and But it's out of control. You all have one purse because you have all have the, your golden calf, your Federal Reserve System, your central banks. You don't even have gold and silver in your pockets. And you, some people say, well, I got some gold and silver. Yeah, if you're a U.S. citizen, a number counted on U.S. citizen, you have no right to that. They can take it away from you at any time. They can take 20% of your labor away, 30% of your labor away, and they are absolutely justified legally in doing that because they can change the rules. That's the, you didn't make the agreement. that It's worse than the agreement that Joseph made. Joseph put a ceiling cap on it. You don't have that. And this is one of the things that's just shocking to me that the people on this symposium, on the panel, aren't making the connection. They talked about usury uh, this morning about 3.30 when I was listening to it. (laughs) But uh, they still don't get it. But we're going to see if we can't put it together so they can get it. And... uh, we're going to get to Exodus, hopefully, and, and then we'll we'll start trying to get it out. Eventually, their their programs will go out on YouTube a little bit at a time, and when they do, we're going to be there showing them what they missed. Hopefully, they will see it. Till then, peace on your house, and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.